Well, good morning, everyone. Let's pray that God would give us understanding of his word. Father, we do thank you that you are a God who loves to reveal yourself because you love to be known. And so we pray now that as we read your word, help us to know you and to know your son better. And we ask it for his sake. Amen. Uh, well, the family and I are back after being away for three weeks. Uh, if you don't recognise me, my name is Evan, by the way. Um, and uh, one of those weeks was study for me, and uh, the, the other two were uh, a much overdue trip back to Sydney to see family and friends, uh, many of whom we haven't seen since we came to Perth five years ago now. And, uh, you know, it was a great time of, of seeing people. There was lots of, my, haven't you grown comments as people saw the kids for the first time in a long time, as many were introduced to Jemima for the first time. And we did lots of Sydney things. You know, we went on a ferry ride, we went to the zoo. Although you'll be very glad to know that when we went to the Australian Museum, the kids' favourite exhibition was the Minerals exhibit. So <laughs> they've been properly assimilated to life in Western Australia. It was, in every way, a trip that... I had very much been looking forward to, very much been looking forward to for a very long time. And now I can't help but find myself looking forward to the next one, uh, looking forward to the next uh, chance to, to see some of those friends and family who were so dear to us. I almost was tempted to book some dates and some tickets when I got back. But what is it that you're looking forward to? Uh, maybe uh, many things, maybe there's one thing in particular that you're looking forward to. And I suspect we're all looking forward to something. In fact, I think most of us find the strength to persevere in life day to day because of the things that we are looking forward to. Uh, looking forward is a very powerful dynamic in our lives. It does keep us going and it keeps us balanced. It brings us great joy. And I would even go so far as to say that, you know, if you and I sat down and, and we talked about the different things that we were looking forward to, we'd actually learn a lot about each other. I'd get to know and understand who you are and, and uh, what makes you tick, what you're, what's important to you. And you'd understand much more about me now that I've shared with you how much I had looked forward to that, that trip back to see friends and family. Now, do you think that's true? Do you think that what we look forward to reveals a lot about us? I think it is. And I think it's especially true when we consider the people that we met in our reading today, particularly Simeon and Anna. Uh, and so I do want to think for a little while now about what it was that they were looking forward to and what we can learn as a result. But I also want to spend a moment or two thinking about the one they were looking forward to, to see what we can learn about him and what is a very unique passage of God's word. Now, when I sat down to prepare this, I was very tempted to kind of call this Jesus growing up or Jesus's childhood or, or something like that, But because uh, the, the Bible actually records very little of Jesus's childhood. These are two small, very tantalizing glimpses, one when he's about a month old and another when he's 12 years old. But actually, that would be to miss the significance of the location of both of these stories. Both are stories of Jesus in the temple in his father's house. And that is, as we will see, is very significant. So let's remind ourselves of what we read. Uh, the passage began with Mary and Joseph circumcising their eight-day-old baby and naming him Jesus, just as the angel had said they should in verse 21. Uh, this was a tradition that was enshrined in the Jewish law that dated back to the circumcision of Isaac, uh, 
uh, the son of Abraham. And according to the law, it was followed by a 33-day period of purification that you can read about in Leviticus chapter 12 if you'd like to. Um, and it's probably after that that Mary and Joseph head to the temple in Jerusalem, which is why the first heading in your outline is Jesus at one month, or probably more accurately six weeks, uh, rather than just Jesus at eight days. Uh, but they go to the temple for two reasons in particular. Uh, firstly, they go to offer sacrifices for Mary's purification so that she can be ceremonially clean again and able to participate in temple worship. Uh, and thus there's doves and pigeons that they bring with them in, in verse 24 because that's what the law required. But secondly, they head to the temple to present their little baby boy to the Lord. Uh, verse 23 here, it quotes from Exodus chapter 13. And it reminds us that God had taught Israel a very important lesson a long time ago. On that great and dreadful night of the very first Passover, the plague of the firstborn, God taught Israel that all firstborn sons belong to him. And so if the Israelites wanted to keep their firstborn sons as part of their family, then they had to redeem their firstborn sons from the Lord. They had to go up to, to the temple and present their sons to God and then buy them back from God, reminding them of the mighty way that God had rescued his people out of Egypt so that they might be his people, a nation that was precious to him. And so that's the second reason why Mary and Joseph are visiting the temple here. They come to redeem Jesus, to buy him back. They're very clearly very devout Jews who take the Old Testament law extremely seriously. But when they come to the temple, the importance of their offering pales in comparison to the person that they meet. They meet a man called Simeon. And verse 25 tells us that he too was righteous and devout, that he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And that word consolation there, it's a beautiful word really. And it's saying quite simply that he was waiting for the time that God himself would come and console his people. The day he would come and, and comfort his people from all of their suffering. All that they'd, been down, that they'd suffered down through their long history, especially their, their many years in exile in Babylon. And it is a word, that word comfort, that we should know well. Because it's a word that comes to us straight from the book of Isaiah, which we studied earlier this year. In fact, the most famous mention of God comforting Israel is Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. You remember the words? Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed and her sin has been paid for. She has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And if you remember Isaiah, he goes on to speak of, of the messenger who would come to prepare the way for the Lord. And then after that, the Lord himself would come and be revealed in glory and he would rule over his people in justice, uh, but also with the tenderness of a gentle shepherd, a comforting hand who would care for them and love them and would lift them up. And that's what Simeon is, is waiting for. That's the day that all faithful Jews of that time were waiting for. And Simeon knew that it was in the Christ, it was in the Messiah, that that day would come. And the astonishing thing about this passage is that he recognises that this young baby that's being brought to him by this 
this, this young couple, this little six-week-old baby, is the one. He is the one who would grow to rule his people Israel. He is the one who, with the tenderness and gentleness of a shepherd, would finally bring the comfort and consolation that Israel had looked forward to for so long. And verse 25 even tells us that Simeon had received a special word from God, telling him that he wouldn't die before he saw the Messiah. And so what we begin to realize is that even though Mary has been looking forward to the birth of her child for some nine months, there are others who've been looking forward to the birth of Jesus for much longer. And somehow upon seeing him, Simeon instinctively knew that God had fulfilled his special promise to him. And now he had seen the Messiah, the comforter of his people. And that's why he praises God so eloquently in the words of verses 29 to 32. In verse 29, Simeon even says that now he will happily die. It's an amazing thing to say, really. Uh, There's actually no indication in the passage that Simeon is an old man. Uh, That's usually the way that he's assumed. Uh, uh, He might have been elderly, but he also might have been much younger. But whether he's old or young, Simeon, he declares that the moment that he has looked forward to his entire life has now come. He has seen the one who will comfort God's people. And so now he is content to die. His bucket list only ever has had one thing on it. And now that it's come, life has nothing more that he desires than the immense privilege of what he has already received. He has seen the Messiah. It's an expression of remarkable perspective and faith and certainty in God. Simeon doesn't even need to see the salvation that Jesus will bring. He is content just to lay eyes on the one who would bring it. No wonder Mary and Joseph marveled at what he said in, in verse 33. But listen to what Simeon goes on to say in verse 34. Because Simeon blesses them, and then he says to to Mary, Jesus' mother, he says, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. Simeon recognizes that not everyone will want the comfort and consolation that Jesus offers. Some will rise because of him, but some will also fall. Just as Isaiah had prophesied, when the Messiah came, he would be a a mighty fortress. He would be a a sanctuary to cling to, a, a rock upon which you can rely. But that very same rock would also be a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that causes them to fall, Isaiah 8.14. And that's the reason why some will speak out against him and oppose him. As, and as they do so, their hearts will be revealed. It's, it's very interesting. One of the things that the Old Testament reminds us of again and again is that it is the Lord who knows the heart, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7. But it is Jesus who will reveal people's hearts by how they respond to him. Some hearts will be shown to love the Messiah and the one who sent him. Other hearts will be shown to hate him. But either way, Jesus will bring the thoughts of every heart into the plain light of day 
I even wonder here actually whether or not uh, this is a bit of a hint as to why Luke chooses his unusual style of writing. Uh, One of the things that I know has already been mentioned is that uh, Luke has a a tendency on spending more time talking about how people react to certain events than he does talking about the events themselves. He's very economical when he describes what happens and he's quite lavish when he talks about the different ways that people respond to the Lord Jesus. And I wonder whether it's Simeon's words that have given him the hint that that's the most significant thing often to focus on. How have others, and therefore how will we, respond to the Lord Jesus Christ? But Simeon even has a warning for Mary in verse 35. He says, well, she's told that a sword will pierce her soul too. She's told that it's no straightforward thing to be the mother of the Messiah. And Mary learns here that her life Uh, With Jesus, it will bring her great joy, but it will also bring her great grief. And no doubt this points forward to the misery that will befall her in the years to come when her son will be executed on a Roman cross. And perhaps at that moment, she would look back to those words of, of Simeon and find comfort that this was all part of God's plan. But perhaps there's even a a more immediate fulfillment in the passage yet to come. But we quickly move on to meet the second character. We meet Anna in the temple. And we're told that that she is an old woman, a prophet, who never left the temple but worshipped there day and night. And here is a woman who's been a widow for an awfully long time. Here is a woman who has suffered much in her life. Here is a woman who you could imagine could have grown quite bitter. That at one point there must have been so many things that she had been looking, looking forward to uh, that had been taken away from her. But instead there's no bitterness in her at all. Instead we find here a woman who is incredibly devoted to God, who worships God devoutly, who, who looks forward uh, too, to, to what God would do to redeem the city of Jerusalem. And so she thanks God for for this son, this this child, this this Jesus, and begins telling other people about him. Do you notice the way that Luke describes him? Have a look there at at verse 38. Uh, Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and, and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna and these others were looking forward to the redemption of, of the city. They, uh, you know, we've already heard back in chapter 1 about how Zechariah has promised that God will come to redeem his people. But here, these people are looking forward to the redemption of the city, of, of, of Jerusalem itself. That's what these people anticipate. And again, all of this, it's the language of the Old Testament. It's the language of, of Isaiah. Godly Israelites were looking forward to not just the redemption of them as a people, but they were looking forward to a cosmic redemption, a cosmic renewal of all things, not just of individuals, not just of the nation, but of God renewing their city and their their temple and even their worship. They longed for God to redeem the whole system and indeed the whole world. And so we can't help but be struck by the way that Simeon and Anna and all these other unnamed Jews had faithfully been looking forward to all of these things, faithfully trusting in all of God's promises that had been handed down from generation to generation in the words of the Old Testament. 
But we can't also help but be struck by the very lofty things that they say about this little baby boy. The words spoken about Jesus can't be missed. In the first place, we can't miss the almost shocking phrases that Luke uses in verse 25 and 38. Jesus is the one who will bring the longed-for consolation of Israel. And Jesus is the one who will ultimately redeem Jerusalem. These are not small things that are being said here. These are things that are tapping into rich themes of Old Testament teaching. These are incredibly important. And then there's the eloquent speech of Simeon in verses 29 to 32, which reminds us so much of Zechariah's prophecy at the end of chapter 1. And again, it's full of allusions to prophecy and to Isaiah and to the rest of the Old Testament. The great theme is the salvation that God will bring. Salvation that will bring not just glory to Israel, but will even be a light to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews, like you and I. Every nation will see the light of this redeeming son. And yet again, here as uh, with everything else that has come before, Luke is teaching us about Jesus, what he will be and, and what he will do, so that we won't fail to appreciate the significance of his arrival. Because even before we've heard a single word from Jesus, Luke has amassed Many significant words about Jesus. So that when we finally do hear him speak, we'll know to pay very close attention. And Luke then summarizes this section in verses 39 to 40 by uh, telling us that the family returned to Nazareth and that Jesus grew in strength and wisdom and uh, the grace of God was upon him. And then we fast forward 12 years. And we find Jesus in the Jerusalem temple once again. Uh, Jesus had gone to Jerusalem with his family for the Passover festival. Uh, Mary and Joseph had set out for home after the feast was over, only to realize at the end of the first day's travel that Jesus was not with them. Now, I don't think we ought to think too poorly of uh, Mary and Joseph at this point. I think, put your phones away. We're not going to call the Department of Communities or, or anything like that. Uh, you know, by now, uh, Mary and Joseph, they've got many other children apart from Jesus. And having just spent three weeks traveling with four small children, I have nothing but sympathy for Mary and Joseph <laughs> at this point. I pass no judgment. Uh, presumably, they ha were traveling with a, a large group with many relatives, and they just assumed that Jesus was traveling with someone else, one of his cousins or, or, or something like that. But whatever has happened, the point is, Jesus is still in Jerusalem, and it takes his parents a day to discover that he's missing. And then Mary and Joseph, they head back to Jerusalem, and they spend three days searching for him. And now, just like Simeon and Anna, they are looking for Jesus and looking forward to seeing him. And like Simeon and Anna, they find him at the temple with the Jewish teachers discussing the big things of life. Now, it would be easy to imagine that at this point that uh, Jesus was perhaps a very precocious 12-year-old uh, to be sitting and speaking with, with such people. But verse 46 tells us that he was listening and asking questions. And that in verse 47, he had as an audience some of the most learned and impressive men in all of the city of Jerusalem. And they are amazed by his understanding and his answers. 
And already we're getting glimpses of what verse 40 told us, that Jesus is full of wisdom and the grace of God is indeed upon him. Precocious may not be the right word, but this is certainly no ordinary 12-year-old boy. And then when Mary does finally find him, Mary, she berates him. No doubt she felt genuinely grieved by Jesus not having begun the trip with them. And perhaps also she takes out on Jesus some of the frustration that she feels with herself. And then we hear Jesus' response. And verse 49, these are actually the very first words of Jesus in Luke's gospel. And what does he say? He says, why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? No, I wasn't traveling with you because I was with my father. And why did it take you three days to find me? Where else would I have been? It's an incredibly powerful statement. And it must have been very hard for for Mary and Joseph to hear those, those first words of Jesus in Luke's gospel. Now, I'm sure you realise that uh, uh, many parents can get a little excited by the first words that their children say. Uh, And sometimes parents can even get a little bit competitive about the first words that their children can say, you know, vying to see whether or not it'll first be mum or dad who kind of gets acknowledged. Uh, I was actually really competitive about this with my children. In fact, I was so competitive about this, I didn't even let Bond know that it was a competition. I still lost (laughs) 4-0. But at least none of my kids called someone else mum or dad. You know, at least someone didn't kind of walk into the house and they ran up to them and said, dada, dada, and gave them a big hug or anything like that. And yet, I think that's something of the experience that Mary and Joseph have here. They are his human parents. But the very first words that Jesus speaks in Luke's account of his life are words that acknowledge his father, but it's not Joseph. They're words that acknowledge his divine father. Jesus is revealing here that he has a higher loyalty than the one that he feels to his human parents. And from his point of view, it's an obvious loyalty that he expects Mary and Joseph to grasp. They're astonished to find Jesus in the temple. Jesus is astonished that they looked anywhere else. And I'm sure they feel real disappointment at this moment. And in fact, I think that now Mary is beginning to understand what Simeon said back in verse 35, that a sword would pierce her own soul too. They're beginning to realise that they may have redeemed their son so long ago, taken him back from the Lord, but in reality he's always and will always belong to God his Father. His life will not be the life of a a good Jewish son, you know, there to give his parents joy as he grows up, as he is successful in his education and builds a good career, finds a nice girl to marry, provides them with lots of grandchildren and has that great Perth dream of never moving from the suburb where he grew up. You know, Jesus has a heavenly father and a divine mission, a mission that many have been looking forward to but a mission that will cause some to rise and many to fall. Jesus has not come to bring comfort to his human parents, 
but to all Israel and to all people, to all who would trust and follow him. And so Luke then concludes this chapter in verses 51 and 52. We're assured that Jesus was an obedient son to his human parents. And we're again told that Mary stored up these things in her heart. She remembered and she reflected on these things for for many years to come. And it has occurred to many readers of Luke's gospel that uh, Luke here is likely implying that he spoke to Mary personally about these things. And it's because she stored up these things in her heart that he could write about them for us. And then verse 52 echoes verse 40 uh, by telling us that Jesus grew in wisdom and knew the favour of God and of men. And so ends our our, our little section, a section that uh, provides us some great insights into Jesus, some great moments telling us about who he is and what it is that he would do. And it does so by allowing us to hear some very significant words spoken about Jesus and even by Jesus. And so as we finish up, what should we learn from all of this? And I want to suggest to you that it is this theme of looking forward, of what we look forward to that we should pay the most attention to. Firstly, what should we be learning from those who did look forward? You know, I hope that you didn't miss that this is actually a very Jewish section uh, of, of the Bible. In fact, I, I'm sorry if there's uh, parts or details that perhaps I, I glossed over very quickly and you, you didn't quite follow because there's a lot of detail here. Uh, Luke underlines the eagerness of Mary and Joseph to do everything that the law required of them. And he also leaves us in no doubt that uh, there is a strong Jewish heritage and devotion uh, in Simeon and Anna as well. And I think what emerges here is actually uh, that the nature of a true, a true and faithful and mature relationship with God actually has two parts. It is, in one part, it's law-abiding. Uh, it listens to God. It, it hears what he has to say. It's concerned with his instructions. It's concerned with, with obedience. But also, it's expectant. It looks forward, it's hopeful, it, 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 it sees in the future the promises of God and longs for them to be fulfilled, all of the purposes of God to come about. And that the truly faithful Jew in Jesus' day was a legalist in the very best sense of that word, but the faithful Jew was also someone who was waiting eagerly for the promises of God to be fulfilled. And that's what the Pharisees and many of the other Jewish leaders in Luke's gospel will get wrong. As we keep reading and as the the story unfolds for us, we will will see that the the Pharisees are legalists, but they're legalists only. They're not looking for the fulfillment of God's promises in the way that Simeon and Anna were. They're not really open to seeing the Messiah as God chooses to reveal him. But the Judaism we see here is looking forward to something. It's deeply and passionately hoping in God. And the truth, faithful Jew wants to keep God's law, but also recognises and wants to meet the Messiah. That's what Simeon and Anna and all her friends were looking forward to. And even that word that's translated as waiting in verse 25 is actually uh, the the same word that's used to describe the looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem in verse 38. 
Luke underlines that actually all of these people that we've met in, in this chapter, uh, Simeon, Anna, Anna's friends, they're all the same. They're all looking forward to the same thing. They're looking forward to that moment that God would console his people and redeem Jerusalem. They're looking forward to the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that way, they're a model for us as well. They remind us that, yes, our life with the Lord Jesus, our our, our life with God ought to be concerned with obedience. It ought to be concerned with listening to God and obeying and keeping carefully his instructions to us. But it also ought to be concerned with our looking forward to what he will do. Uh, They remind us that actually the coming of Christ to earth, which we celebrate, it is the greatest event of human history. Christmas is the great event of human history. It's it's worthy of being the turning point of human history and even of our entire calendar. It's the sort of event that means that Simeon is happy to die once he's seen it. Simeon and Anna lived to see God's plans fulfilled, not theirs. Or perhaps more accurately, they lived by conforming their plans to God's. They lived their whole life looking forward, looking forward to what God would do through Jesus. And they are a great rebuke to us in that sense. How central is Jesus to our lives? To what extent have we conformed our plans to God's? Are we looking forward to what they looked forward to? You know, just... How long is our bucket list? And what is the thing in your life that uh, you really hope for, that you could really, like Simeon saying, now that it's come, I'm happy to die? And would it have anything to do with Jesus at all? Is our Christian faith a matter of asking God to bless our plans? Or is it about asking God to take away our plans and give us his about letting him direct our lives into what he wants for us. Have we asked Jesus to follow us or are we following him? You know, it's very easy in life, isn't it? Uh, It's very easy to have other things that we're looking forward to. And it's very easy to to, to say to Jesus, yes, Jesus, I will worship you, but I'll I'll worship you if. No, I'll, I'll worship you if you... Give me that that good career. I'll worship you if you give me financial security for my family. I'll I'll worship you uh, if you give me that holiday back to see those friends and family that I love. But of course, we're not really worshipping Jesus, are we, at that point? What we're really worshipping is the thing on the other side of that if. And Jesus is just a means to that end. Is not the thing that we're longing for and look forward to. So it's an important question that we need to ask ourselves all the time, isn't it? What is it that we're looking forward to? And of course, you and I, we still have so much to look forward to in God's plan. We still await what the Apostle Paul calls the redemption of our bodies. We still await the day when God will bring the final and perfect comfort and consolation to all his people. Are we looking forward to that? We ought to pray that God would would make us more like Anna, looking forward to Christ's coming and talking excitedly about it with whoever would listen. 
And we ought to pray to God that he would make us more like Simeon, looking forward to Christ's coming and finding that life has nothing more, nothing better to offer us than the joy of seeing him. Seeing him arrive to finally shepherd his people with gentleness and tenderness, to comfort us. Because it's Jesus who should really capture our hearts in this passage today, isn't it? He's the one that Simeon and Anna looked forward to. The one who was just a little baby in the temple, but who will be the tender shepherd of his people, both Jews and Gentiles alike for all eternity. And so these verses remind us that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of God's purposes. All of his promises that have been made in faithfulness and now they have been kept in faithfulness too. He's the one who causes many to rise as they find refuge in him. And he's the one who causes many to fall as they oppose him. The one over whom many stumble, the one whom many speak against. And he's the one whose primary loyalty was to God his Father. The one who was on about his Father's business. He's the one, more than anyone else before or since, who conformed his life to the plans of his Father in heaven, who lived to please and follow him. And you might be here today unconvinced by Jesus unsure that he is everything that Luke is saying that he is and that he's not all that he's cracked up to be. You might find yourself stumbling over Jesus and even speaking against him. And if that's the case, I hope that you will come to see that Simeon and Anna, they're models here, but they're models to us not because they're people of great faith. They're models to us here because they saw Jesus for who he really is. And I hope you will come to see Jesus for who he really is so that you might rise and not fall. And if you are here today like I am, convinced that Jesus is everything that Luke says he is and longing that Jesus would grip our hearts more and more every day and that he might shape our plans and our desires and our expectations and hopes for the future more and more every day, then I hope that you will see Jesus again today and that you acknowledge with with fresh appreciation who he is and that you would look forward to him for we see in this passage we see jesus being redeemed by the obedience of his parents but we know that one day the one that this one that whom they were longing for and looking forward to he would redeem by making his own life a perfect offering, a perfect sacrifice of atonement. And by doing so, he would be a light for the Gentiles and glory for the, the people of Israel because he was the salvation which God had prepared in the sight of all people. He is the one who brings comfort and redemption to all who look forward to him. Let's pray. Father, cause us, we pray, to be like these great men and women of faith that we've read about in these verses. Help us, Lord, to be gripped by the Lord Jesus and to look forward to all his his ultimate reign will bring us, to appreciate him now for all that he's done, 
but also to look forward to that day, to look forward to that day when he will come again and that that coming might shape all of our lives. Grip us, we pray again, with the true and clear sense of who Jesus is and what he has done in redeeming sinners like us. And Father, we pray that you would cause our hearts to rise in love for him and that we might patiently and eagerly wait for the day when we too will rise to meet him. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.